Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. Um, this is, oh, I don't know, episode 330-something or other, and uh, we are got some great questions to answer this week. But first, I wanted to just say really quickly, I... Um, I am working to get through my master's program as quickly as I can, and I'm on the thesis portion of that now, and I hope to have that wrapped up in the next couple months. And um, once that's done, it's done, and uh, and I will be um, able to dedicate you know some more time and attention to my channel, which has been dedicated so much most most of my time to. Um, you know, to this program, to this education uh, over the last year. And it is, and I know, and I realize, and I acknowledge that, you know, I have not been able to put as much creativity and time into my channel as I was doing before this program, which was a predictable thing that I, you know, that I knew was going to come. I feel like I am losing some people or I am, I'm losing some Patreon supporters. I am, I feel like my, you know, my views are going down a little bit. And I know that this is a niche topic that I talk about and that I have a rotating audience of people who kind of come in and consume my content and sort of go off. And I think that's generally speaking how, how, my, how my channel is received by people at large. But I'm, I'm guessing a little bit with that. And of course, I know that there are some of you who are diehard fans and stick with me through thick and thin. And I love you all. And you are my critics and uh, my 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 best supporters. So I'm going to throw out there again, as I do every every now and again, just a request for information, for your feedback, for your ideas as to how I might do better on my channel or what you, what else more you would like to see or hear about here. So because um, I am doing the best I can. I'm this is you know what you see and what I put out here is not. Um, you know, the, 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 just throwing content out just to produce it. I, I, I put a lot of time, a lot of thought into what I do here and I want to do the best job I can. So anyway, just wanted to, um, throw that out there for you guys and, and solicit your feedback. I hope that you will check out my podcast that was posted yesterday with Cyprian. It was a great talk we had about Scientology and leadership and ideas that L. Ron Hubbard had about that. I was able to relate some things I've been studying from the research I'm doing on my, on my master's thesis to some of what uh, Hubbard's nonsense and uh, some of the stuff that Scientology gets up to. And we try really hard in that episode to relate it back to, you know, the real world and how this information might be applicable to anybody in any circumstance, not just, uh, you know, weird Scientology stuff. So anyway, I hope you guys will check that out. And as always, I will put in a plug for our live call-in show, which we do every Friday. Really, really enjoy doing that. My wife and I get to sit here and talk to you guys for an hour and talk with you because it's a call-in show. So I hope you guys will check that out. And of course, if you have, by the way, um, disagreements, upsets, problems with me, something I've said, something you think I'm off the rails about, that show was built and designed for you to be able to call in and talk to me and resolve those differences or sort them out or just have a disagreement and let's talk about it. Um, I am perfectly down for that. You know, if we can have civil discourse, I want civil discourse on things we don't agree about. And I am putting that out there as, as well. So feel free to contact me on those Friday nights when we do this show and my wife as well, Melissa here. 
and uh, let us know what's on your mind. All right, that all being said, let's get on with the show now. Here we go. Michael Yoder. I was briefly involved with the Landmark Forum. I call it Scientology Light, previously est, and lots stolen from LRH. When you start into the cult, there's a lot of love bombing and encouragement, but the more I got into it, the more I saw the man behind the curtain. And after volunteering for a forum, I had a light bulb moment and realized that it was all a sham. My critical thinking had finally kicked in, and I started to question it all. I'm curious about your thoughts on how love bombing can disengage a person's critical thinking skills, especially when they're enticed by a cult or coercive relationship. Michael, thank you for this question. This is a really good one. Uh, love bombing is a topic that is quite interesting and is is a little is a little is a little deep. A little, there's, there's some biological stuff going on. There's there's different ways of looking at it, and I I thought we might I, I might use this question to to kind of go a little deeper on it. So I pulled up a couple articles and and references that I thought I'd go over with you guys. First off, uh, for, <laughs> voice cracking here. First off, I want you guys to know that there are chemicals in the brain that are activated under certain circumstances. These are called neurotransmitters, and you don't have to get into all the neurology and neuroscience of this to know that there's chemicals in your brain that make you feel good. And um, there are a couple different ones, and I thought I'd differentiate these real fast. We have dopamine, which is the feel-good hormone. Uh, it's a hormone and neurotransmitter, and it's part of the reward system of your brain. So when you're experiencing pleasurable sensations, learning, memory, motor system functions, dopamine has something to do with all of that. So odds are, if you're feeling happy or feeling good, dopamine is involved in that process, and it's the thing that is firing off that's making you feel good. The, um, there is another hormone called serotonin, which is also a neurotransmitter, and that helps regulate mood as well as sleep, appetite, digestion, learning ability, and memory. Now, you're not going to get tested on this. I'm just throwing it out there for those who are interested that these are the, the chemicals I talk about from time to time um, that make us feel pleasure, make us feel good, make us feel love. When we are experiencing the concept or feeling or emotion of love, these chemicals are firing off in our brains, right? Dopamine, serotonin, and specifically with love, oxytocin. Uh, that's actually called the love hormone, and it's essential for childbirth, for breastfeeding, for parent-child bonding. Oxytocin's involved in all of that, and it also helps promote trust, empathy, and bonding in relationships, okay? So I'm bringing these up because love bombing is all about getting those chemicals firing off. That's what it's for. That's the intention of love bombing. And you go, okay, well, what's love bombing? Well, it's an attempt to influence a person by uh, giving them demonstrations of attention and affection. And there's actually a whole Wikipedia page about this, and I'm pulling up a, a quote from Margaret Singer. Now, interestingly, the term love bombing was invented by the Moonies. Unification Church in the 1970s, and it was used also by members of the Family International. Now, Margaret Singer was a anti-cult psychologist. She was one of the original 
you know, sort of alarm criers about cults. And she wrote in her book, uh, Cults in Our Midst, she said this. As soon as any interest is shown by the recruits, and we're talking about cults now, recruiting people, as soon as any any interest is shown by the recruits, they may be love-bombed by the recruiter or other cult members. This process of feigning friendship and interest in the recruit was originally associated with one of the early youth cults, but soon it was taken up by a number of groups as part of their program for luring people in. Love bombing is a coordinated effort, usually under the direction of leadership, that involves long-term flooding recruits and newer members with flattery, verbal seduction, affectionate but usually non-sexual touching, and lots of attention to their every remark. Love bombing or the offer of instant companionship is a deceptive ploy accounting for many successful recruitment drives. Okay? And I thought in the interest of giving you guys some information that you might actually utilize, um, uh, in your own lives with this, love bombing is also not just something done by cults, but it is a technique used by narcissists or people who are um, sort of stalkerish uh, types, right, when in personal romantic relationships. Love bombing is a tactic that's used in order to overwhelm a person and, uh, again, get them firing off those chemicals in their brain so that they will establish trust and empathy and love for this person or for this group as quickly as possible. The idea is to speed up the process that we all usually go through anyway, which we call a courtship or a getting to know you or that period of time when you're establishing a relationship with a person or a group. You know, you're, you're, you don't know these people. You don't know what this is all about. You have an interest in it. Maybe there's some friendliness with one of the individuals. Maybe a family member or a friend brought you in. So there's trust on that. But then you're trying to build it in this group. Well, how does the group go about doing that? They love bomb you. And this, I thought I might give you um, a couple more techniques or parts of how love bombing gets done. Um you know, they're overwhelming you, and it is a manipulation technique. Uh, quote, it's often used to win over your trust and affection so that they can meet a goal of theirs, explains a licensed marriage and family therapist, Sharin uh, Bekar. So it's it's trying to override your distrust or your initial social, like, mm, no, 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 you know, Kind of bring that threat assessment down, right? Because when you're wary or mm, not quite sure what's going on, you don't have a lot of information, you know, you have a, there's a threat assessment being done. But when people are giving you gifts or free things or introductory um, uh, bonuses or percentages off services, you know, this kind of introductory stuff. Um, that can be part of a love bombing campaign. They can't stop complimenting you. You know, now here's the thing about this that, that really feeds into and, and makes it manipulative is we all want to be liked and admired by people around us that we whose opinions we value and people that we trust. We want them to like us. It's, it's, a, it's a major driver for how we make our decisions and live our lives and, and navigate our, the, the course of our lives. 
Um, but constant praise, right, can make your head spin. It can get you really high really fast when lots of people are throwing admiration at you. It can really rev you up and it can get your head really big, it can really inflate you. And um, But this is, you know, if it's not genuine, then it, it's a bit of a red flag that people would be doing that to you, right? And this is one of the ways that, that, that this gets done is, you know, I love everything about you. I've never met anyone as perfect as you. You're the only person I want to spend time with. Now, from a cult's point of view, you're going to hear things like, you know, this, you, you are so amazing. You are, you know, people come in here every day and uh, I've just, I rarely see somebody as intelligent as you. You really seem to have a, a quick understanding for things. It's, it makes a lot of sense that you would come in here and talk to us because this is a match made in heaven. This is perfect. It's so, it's so perfect that you chose to come in here. It really shows how clever, how intelligent, how uh, insightful you are. Right. These kind of lines. OK. Um, now, this is interesting. They bombard you with phone calls and texts. You know, this is the thing with Scientology that they are famous for is never giving up, never surrendering your address or phone number. They always track you down and find you and try to, you know, bomb you with messaging and, and mail and texts and and emails. They want basically because they want your undivided attention. Um. Yeah, this is a really big thing, right? True love, now, true love, of course, and respect doesn't want your attention all the time, doesn't need you, you know, constantly uh, having your attention on them. But a group like Scientology, they demand your attention all the time. They think that you shouldn't have your attention on anything else but Scientology all the time. In an ideal world, that is how Scientologists think about the subject. So they, when they are doing their recruitment, they very, very, very much, you know, uh, want your uh, schedule to be firmed up. They want to firm everything up and confirm it and double confirm it and triple confirm it and get you to come down even more often. And we, we have these seminars, we have these events, we have this workshop, you can do this weekend. There's, there's just an, a, an endless array of things that you can do to occupy your time with this new group that, there's, that is love bombing you, right? So um, the other thing is they, um, they want commitment and they want it now. Now, okay, they're very like, let's go. We what you know, this is the thing to do. A lot of pressure. And um, when you try to slow them down, they get really upset over boundaries, right? You want to place some boundaries, you want to put some some filters, some like, nah, nah you know, I, I need my Saturdays to myself. I always take my weekends off, or Wednesday nights are for me, or you know, these kind of things. Oh no, 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 that shouldn't be that way. You need to be, you know, you need to make a change. You need to dedicate yourself to this cause if you really want to solve this ruin that we have found for you, if you remember, you know, all my talk about that. So basically, they come across as uh, overly needy, <laughs> okay? And I think you guys get the idea from the things I've talked about here so far. So that's love bombing, and that is why it is purposefully designed to overcome your critical thinking skills, because it's all about, you know, I've said before, almost from the very beginning of talking about Scientology, that there are two logical fallacies it really builds on, and that is appeal to authority and appeal to emotion. 
The appeal to authority comes from setting up a false authority, L. Ron Hubbard, and then claiming he knew what he was talking about and listening to him over any other authority. That is a logical fallacy. Also, with love bombing and with the kind of attention and emotional revving up that they do, that's the appeal to emotion. They're trying to make you feel good. And if something feels good, it must be true or it must be right or correct or, or good for you. This is not always true. Twinkies taste really good, but they're not good for you. <laughs> Right. There's a lot of things that are really pleasurable that are not good for you. So we can we can make this we can get into very, you know, error fallacious thinking um, if we are driven only by our emotions. And that's what love bombing tries to do. So that's why it um that's why it works, that's why it's effective, but it can be spotted. You can, you know, if you can keep your head on. Uh, straight, then you can um, spot and overcome that that effort, and that's. But it's hard. It's really hard because again, we all want to be admired. We all want to be liked. We all want to have people, you know, love us. And so it, it there's that conflict in internally, and that's why you have to keep a, a keep your critical thinking head on on your shoulders. Tony Cartledge. Does the person being audited ever see the e-meter move, or is it only the auditor who sees it? And do they actually see movement, or are they making it up? What do you think is going on with the hand contact on the cans and any movement of an e-meter needle? All right, Tony, thanks for this question. Yeah, the e-meter is, of course, a big topic with Scientology. And as far as this question goes, no, the meter is always set up so that the pre-clear, the person who's holding the cans and being audited or being interviewed or being word cleared or whatever they're doing on the e-meter, the person cannot see the needle. The, uh, Hubbard said this is distracting, and, and it wasn't always this way. Back in the 50s when meters were first invented, people could sit side by side or you could see the meter, and it wasn't as, as refined. The techniques of using the e-meter were not quite as refined as they got in the early 60s when Hubbard really kind of clamped down on it and, and uh, formalized how meters were used. So, uh, so no, in modern Scientology, no one ever sees the, the needle. And um, and the reason for that is because they like the, uh, Hubbard says that yours that is distracting that the person's attention is supposed to be on themselves their past their trauma their their mind and not on the on the e meter and also they can pretty much tell what's going on on the e meter because the auditor is using the meter to guide and control the session so clearly when the auditor asks questions he's asking the meter. And if there's a response on the meter, then he looks up to the preclear and starts asking him questions about it. So in a sec check, for example, you might ask a question, have you ever stolen an apple? Well, you're not asking the person, you're asking the meter. You, the, the auditor's looking at the meter and saying, have you ever stolen an apple? And if the meter responds, the auditor looks up and goes, all right, have you ever stolen an apple? So clearly at that point, the, the preclear holding the cans knows, oh, the, the meter responded, right? That's the assumption. And, um, and yes, the needle does move on the dial. It does respond to things. But 
Those responses are random, almost uniformly. They are um, a result of um, muscle tension. They are a result of sweat. Micro droplets of sweat can change the um, responses on the e-meter because what it is reading is it is re reading electrical resistance. It's how much resistance is there to the signal that the meter is sending through the person's or rather, I should say, over the person's body. It doesn't actually, the electrical signal doesn't actually penetrate your skin. It just goes over it. And your skin is electrically conductive. It can conduct, you know, uh, electrical flow can go over it. And um, the degree of resistance that it meets is what is measured on the needle on the dial. So if I ask you questions, if I ask you sharp and pointed questions, then you will have reactions internally and externally. Your hands will move, your muscles will tense up, your skin will sweat, and that will change the resistance of the electrical signal. Internal changes can also cause uh, changes in that signal or in your skin resistance, um, such as your uh, parasympathetic um, nervous system going into play, uh, that causes muscle tensions and causes um, changes in chemical changes in your skin that change the electrical resistance. So a little technical, but that's basically how it works. And um, yeah, that's basically what's going on in, in terms of uh, what the meter is responding to. And um, anyway, I, I, there's a there's a longer explanation for all this that, that I, I have uh, been promising forever and that will will be done as soon as I get my degree finished. I'll be making that metering video. So that'll be all, I'll break it all down and have diagrams and stuff like that. But that's the simple explanation for it now. And I hope that, I hope that answers your question. Logamug, given the many times you had read Dianetics, how did you handle the dissonance between you being acknowledged as reaching the state of clear while not having the powers or attributes of a clear like perfect recall? All right, the way that this is resolved in Scientology is that L. Ron Hubbard carried on a path of research. And so Hubbard writes Dianetics in 1950, and he says a clear is this and this and this and this and this. And everybody goes, okay, that's great. And they buy Dianetics and they practice Dianetics. And then Hubbard researches more and does lectures and says, well, we thought this, but actually this. And then he does more research and he changes it again. And then he changes it again. And then he changes it again. And over the years through the 1950s, the idea of what a clear is, how Hubbard went about describing it, there being uh, various uh, different levels of being clear, different types of clear. For example, there was a messed clear and a theta clear and a cleared theta clear. And, you know, various stages of, of labeling that went involved, that got involved in this whole clearing thing. So clear sort of through the 1950s was not considered a a a done deal where it was a known quantity and this is what it is hubbard kept muddying the works and and, and throwing you know uh, wrenches into the works by redefining it uh, by saying that they'd achieved it but then they hadn't achieved it or we went around this other way to achieve it and you know there were different techniques that were developed in order to make a clear and then 
he kind of uh, went off in a whole different direction and started talking about OT, Operating Thetan, and how this was actually the big goal and kind of distracted people. We, you know, a little misdirection going on with that. So as far as how I resolved it, basically what I'm saying is that looking at all of this research and this, this path of, of discovery that L. Ron Hubbard had engaged in, you get this idea that... Um, that it was a little fluid, that it was a little like, well, yeah, he said that, but maybe that was more like a goal than it was an achievable actual state that Hubbard had had gotten people to. Maybe that was sort of this theoretical description of what it could be or should be. And through the course of doing Dianetics and Scientology and going up the bridge, and Hubbard learned that there were all these levels and all these processes you had to do. And, you know, you couldn't just go straight to Dianetics. You had to do these objective processes. Oh, and you have to handle the drugs, and you have to handle this, and you have to handle that, and you have to do these things called the grades. And, you know, all this stuff that Hubbard added to the mix that to my mind, when I was a Scientologist, made it so that it seemed like, oh, when he wrote Dianetics, that was kind of this quaint theoretical idea he had, but actually look at all this work he had to do in order to make it so that everybody could get there. And so at that point, Clear was redefined as a being who no longer has his own reactive mind. And that being the definition that I attested to when I said I was clear is I no longer have my own reactive mind. I was not attesting to perfect recall, you know, uh, uh, eidetic memory, not ever going to get sick again, right? All these things that Hubbard lists in the book Dianetics. I thought, well, those are things I'll achieve as I continue up the bridge to OT. In other words, I compromised and I, you know, sort of engaged in a fantastic degree of cognitive dissonance to make it make sense because it was obvious that I was now clear. I was being called clear. I was being given a certificate that I am clear, but I could did not have all these things Hubbard said how does this make sense? Well, it's not going to be at the frame of mind that I was in at the time. It's not going to be, well, Hubbard didn't know what he was talking about, or this is all dumb, or this is just a con job. That's not where my mind went, right? Instead, my mind went, well, how do I make this? How do I resolve this? Here's how I resolve it, as I described to you. And that was my cognitive dissonance. It might well be that other Scientologists came up with other reasons or other justifications for it but that's my story and i'm i'm sticking to it jeff robinson leah was at least the third biggest celebrity in the cult do you know if there was more to the situation than simply asking where shelly was do you know any other celebrities that were treated as harshly what did the organization hope to gain by pursuing this course of action with someone who had given so much money Thanks for this, Jeff. And I want to get right to the point on this and say what they hoped to gain was control. Scientology, you know, when, when we talk about Scientology as a scam and a con, well, it is that. It is, it's all about getting your, getting your money. 
But it does that by overwhelming your determinism and basically controlling you. And this is the authoritarian part of this, where your free will or your choices or your ability to speak up or speak back or have your own thinking on the topic become really not important. That's not, you know, that's that's not what you're part of this group to be, you know, about. Now, the weird thing about Scientology is that they tell you that it is about self-empowerment and personal freedom and free will and accomplishing your own goals. So you're fed this whole PR line that it's all about empowerment when, in fact, the truth is that it's not about empowering you. It's about controlling you and manipulating you. And this is the push-pull of destructive cults. This is, this is the, the, the weird thing about them. So um, when people in the organization or in a group like this start demonstrating some free will or some pushback, then the effort of the group is automatically, and especially the leadership of the group, is automatically to tamp that down. You know, you got to stop that because that kind of stuff spreads. That's contagious. You don't want that kind of thing spreading around. You have to shut that person up right away. And celebrities are really no different than any other Scientologist when it comes to this control factor. As long as you're under control, Scientology is happy with you. Now, that can be manifested in lots of different ways. But once somebody starts bucking the system, like Leah was doing, well, they're very much clearly not in control of Leah at that point. And Leah was not asking little questions about Scientology minutia or technical points or auditing procedure or some policy point. She was directly asking about the leader's wife, her friend, or at least somebody she thought was her friend. And this, of course, in cults, friendship is always conditional on your belief in the cult. So, you know, this was this was a friendship Leah thought she had, and she thought she was being a good friend by inquiring as to where's Shelly? Where's, where's Dave's wife? What is this all about? Now, she saw other things at Tom Cruise's wedding in Italy that she reported on. It wasn't just the fact that Shelly was missing. It was also the fact that um, various people, various Sea Org officers and other people were acting completely off the rails there at the wedding. A guy named Norman Starkey was drunk and apparently was hitting on uh, people there, uh, other celebrities or something, if I remember right. There were other things going on that Leah saw that she thought were wrong. And so she was making noise about major Scientology leadership. She was attacking David by asking about his wife. She was attacking Norman Starkey, the executor of L. Ron Hubbard's estate. I mean, she was making some pretty ballsy kind of statements that Scientologists generally don't get to make. So as the third most, you know, biggest celebrity in Scientology at that time, she felt empowered to be able to ask these questions, right? And she found out in very short order she did not have any such power, and she was uh, being slapped back into line, and she was being made to pay for that, you know, through the sec checking and the truth rundown and stuff that she was subjected to at in Clearwater. So, um, so what they intended to accomplish with that was they intended to slap her back in the line, get her to shut up and, and comply and stop questioning what David Miscavige was doing. You know, you can ask a lot of questions in Scientology and get away with it. But if you start questioning what David Miscavige is up to, 
the 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 gun sights focus on you right away. This is a very, very paranoid individual. David Miscavige has intense skeletons in his closet. And he knows that he is in a uh, position of power that is, that is uh, you know, it's, it's uh, anyway, he could come down. He could be pulled down, and he knows that. And, uh, you know, it's dangerous. It's, you know, it's, it's, he's under threat all the time. So, or at least that's how he thinks about his life. And so when major players like Leah start asking questions, you know, they got to be slapped back into place right away. And that was the effort that was being made with her. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the iron hand was sort of revealing itself, so to speak. But, you know, it's got a velvet glove. There's this velvet glove over the iron hand. But it is an iron hand. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the true nature of what it's all about. And I, I think I've made that point. So there you go. Adam Masters. We have heard of many examples of fair game by the Church of Scientology against former members, public officials, journalists, and critics. The stories tell of a church that is intent on destroying people. In extreme cases, it seems like the church is intent on going so far as to induce their targets to commit suicide, and that the death of such SPs would be almost celebrated in the church. However, you have mentioned that as far as you know, Scientology has never had anyone killed or inflicted serious physical violence upon someone. I believe you talked about even when you were in the Sea Org, you would have not considered doing that to another person, SP or not. We know that violence can be part of Scientology, from the stories of LRH throwing people overboard in the 1970s to Miscavige assaulting people on the Ant base. But these seem more acts of anger in the moment against people who wouldn't fight back as opposed to a campaign of terror against external enemies. I remember a discussion you had with Aaron Smith-Levin saying you wouldn't even hurt a pet of an SP. I believe it was in discussion about a critic of the church who was being targeted by PIs found their dog had died. While there may have been speculation that the church did it, you both agreed it was unlikely. So my question is, where does Scientology draw the line with how they go after their perceived enemies? Life-destroying harassment is okay, but direct violence is out? Is this a moral-slash-ethical distinction, or more about what they feel they can get away with? All right, Adam, thank you for this question, although it seems like you pretty much answered it yourself in asking me the, the question. Because, um, you know, I have said, and Aaron has, has agreed with me, and we've both agreed with each other, that, you know, overt violence against individuals is really not pretty much the style of the Church of Scientology. Now, individuals have, you know, there are exceptions to this rule, and I have heard with my own two ears and seen with my own two eyes, uh, you know, exceptions to this. I've seen Scientologists get violent with each other. I've seen Scientologists get violent with non-Scientologists. But those, as you describe in your question, are kind of moments of anger. Now, Hubbard overboarding people, though, was not. And I did want to clarify that because it was not, Hubbard wasn't just momentarily pissed at people and decided on a whim, okay, off the side of the boat they go. 
Hubbard's philosophy, and we talk about this in my podcast this week, Hubbard's philosophy was that it was only through tough, violent encounters that you cohese a group and you toughen people up and you make a man out of somebody. This is, this is old school OG thinking from his Midwest, you know, or turn of the century upbringing. Hubbard came up in a time when war and violence were something that were good, that were something that you should engage in, and that um, campaigns of terror were the way that you toughen people up and give them a spine. So I'm not saying this is right or true or real, but this is how Hubbard thought about things. So his, his efforts to overboard people or engage in, in campaigns of terror against Scientologists were premeditated and were done uh, with this you know, philosophy in mind. It was completely wrongheaded thinking. And, um, and I'm not even giving Hubbard you know, some kind of rationale or, or justification here. I'm simply explaining where his head was at. Now, as far as, um, you know, harassment but direct violence is out, no, Hubbard also said very, very clearly with coded language that, you know, going out and shooting somebody in the head was perfectly acceptable to him. This was, a, this was something he jokingly referred to as R245, uh, 45 meaning, you know, an, a 45 caliber gun. And uh, R2 was a process routine too. So R245 was a process you could run on somebody that Hubbard jokingly referred to as an instant exteriorization process. In other words, you shoot them in the head, they die, and their spirit goes flying off out of their body. Instant exteriorization. So Hubbard promoted with coded language in his subject direct violence against people, and Hubbard engaged in campaigns of violence against critics and against former members. That did happen. Um, over the years, we have seen a tamping down and a sort of softening and a defanging of the church because of the intense amount of public attention that has been brought on Scientology because of their violent ways. So really, it wasn't a matter of them not being violent. It was a matter of them being violent, getting caught enough times and chilling the hell out, right? And that was, and it's that fear of getting caught that prevents Scientology and Scientologists, the hardcore ones, from engaging in overt campaigns of, of violence and terror against people. And they still hire PIs and individual Scientologists will still go about um, harassing and stalking critics and stuff like that. And we see this to this day uh, reflected in the court cases that have been brought, you know, against Danny Masterson and the church over the stalking and harassment of Danny Masterson's victims. So this is still a thing that goes on. Now, as far as where they draw the line, um, it really is a risk assessment thing, right? There, it could See, here's the thing. It could well be right now that violence has happened and we just don't know about it because it's never leaked out of the church. There's a lot of things that have not leaked out of Scientology yet. And this could well be one of those things is there could have been operations carried out against, you know, former members or church critics that, that were violent. However, we seem to have evidence indicating that that's, that that's not really the case. For example, Pat Broker was followed for 25 years. Tremendous amounts of money paid out to private investigators in order to, to do that. If David Miscavige was really that freaked out and worried and was, and was naturally a violent guy, 
Pat Broker could have been somebody he could have taken out at any time. He had the knowledge, he had the intelligence, he had the, the, the operators there to, to do it, or he could have found other people to do it. And uh, anyway, so he could have pulled that off if he'd really wanted to. And Pat Broker, if there was somebody, you know, that Miscavige was targeting, it was clearly him. But he didn't do that. We hear about pets being killed, and this could or couldn't be coincidence. It's really, we really don't know. But what, what, what we seem to hear from Mike Rinder, who used to head the Dirty Tricks division of Scientology, and Aaron's conjecture and mine and, and others, is that we really just don't see a lot of overt, blatant, in-your-face violence coming out of Scientology at this point. Uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, it was a different story. I'm telling you, it was. But um, now... Not so much, because it's just not that easy to get away with. I mean, especially because of this, right? Cell phones, right? These little devices have done a great deal to ensure the safety and security of a lot of people, uh, you know, former Scientologists and critics included. And there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. TJ Feeney, after the release of the Batman trailer, how excited for the release are you and Mel on a scale of 1 to 10? 10 meaning you're very excited, 1 to 9 meaning you're wrong. Yes, we are extremely pumped over uh, Matt Reeves' uh, movie, The Batman. Um, I cannot wait to see that. I think it's going to be amazing. There's, a, there's a, a very good cast, Robert Pattinson playing Batman, and um, I, we just can't wait. Oscar Hugh Zilch. What is worse, the power of Source, the jazz album Hubbard made on the Apollo, or Hubbard's training films? It's really hard to describe what makes a truly terrible movie a bad one, but it just kills me that these films have not been leaked. Yeah, I really wish that I really wish we could have those technical training films leaked. They would be it would be really something for you guys to see. Oh man, uh, they're bad. But I'm gonna say the power of source was worse. Now I, yeah, I have gotten a lot of hate for not being a jazz guy. I don't like jazz. Never have. Never will. I'm just not that guy. Um, but Hubbard's power of source, ugh, 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 major gag me with a spoon. So yeah, don't, don't, don't want any of that. Steve Wood, if Hubbard was able to navigate the universe, go back and forward in time. How come he didn't see the internet coming? Yeah, I wonder why he didn't see that. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder why it is that Hubbard couldn't tell that the internet was coming. Hmm. All right, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me meander like this. Uh, like I said, please give me any feedback, commentary, ideas you might have as to how I might do a better job here on this channel. I do want to continue to grow this show and grow this channel, and I hope you will help me out with that. Please do like and share this video around on the internet and share the contents of my channel around. There really is no better single source for, you know, so much about Scientology and destructive cults and influence and manipulation and coercive control. I really think my channel is, is, a, is a wealth of information for people on these topics, and I hope you think so too, and will send people my way. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.